I remember when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian while I was living in London. And I came back to Australia and I, and I started attending the local church. And at that point, I really became interested in Christianity. So I started to do some more theological PTC courses, small uh, ad for more college PTC. It's really good. You should do it. Anyway, so I started doing the more PTC courses and I really, really enjoyed them. Uh, and I was learning so much and I was excited about what I was learning and I started telling all my friends. And then the minister said, have you ever thought about ministry? And, and I went, no, I haven't. He said, you should. And I went, oh, okay. So I started doing MTS and I kept on growing and I kept on learning. And I was just telling more and more people because I was learning so much about Christianity. So many of the things that I'd heard or believed or had been taught before I became a Christian uh, they just they just weren't true, I found. And as I was excited, I, I started to tell all my friends, obviously, about Christianity and all the stuff I was learning. And I remember one night, as I got really excited, as I was telling my friends, I got into this pitched argument with a group of my friends. It wasn't heated, it wasn't nasty, it was, but it, it was pitched, it was it was full on. And it ended up just being one guy and me, and we were, we were going at it. It wasn't nasty again. It was, it was, it was very cordial, very loving. We had a great conversation, but it was full on. We were at it. And it went on for about an hour and a half. He'd have his objections, I'd answer his objections, and, and it just went backwards and forwards. And then it got to the point where he just said to me, Adam, if you're right, then we're all going to hell and you don't care. And I was like, and my initial response in my heart, I could, oh, my initial response in my mind was, yeah, I don't care. But then I stopped just before I said anything and I stopped and thought about it. And I went, oh, I do care. So does that mean everything I say is wrong? And and I'm thinking through this. As the conversation, and they're all waiting for a response, and I'm thinking, but I do care. But then that would mean everything I say is false, does it? And then it occurred to me, and I said, no, I do care. That is why I tell you, why don't you listen? And it stopped the argument dead. Because... What the, my friend had done is he'd set up a false dichotomy that if what I was saying is true, then, then that would mean I don't care about them. I don't care that the truth of the gospel would condemn them. I, I have no feelings whatsoever. But when I stopped and thought about it and I said to them, no, I, I really do care about you and that is why I'm telling you these things. Why are you not listening? The, the argument stopped. Because all of a sudden it was upon them. They knew that they were in the wrong. And I'd won the argument. It was a little while longer before I realised, because none of them became Christians. It was a little while longer, and it took me a few years later before I realised winning the argument doesn't win a person to Christ. That was another lesson that took me years to learn. But what really, and why I bring up this story is, my initial response was just to plow ahead, allow the person to define the conversation and just jump in and say, oh, I don't care and just arrogantly push on. Now, we're in the holiday series and we're taking a chance to look 
uh, at some different ideas and some different questions. And, and this was an idea that uh, came up amongst in the staff team. And they said, Adam, why don't you do a sermon where you think about what critiques atheists have against Christianity and show where they're right? And this is what this talk is about. It's not about saying here's where the world is wrong and where Christians are right. I want to look at three common objections to Christianity and what they have to teach us about us, about Christians. This is not a talk aimed at attacking atheists and saying, here's where the atheists are wrong, these are the arguments to use. This is a sermon where I'm looking at what people say and the questions we receive and what they say about Christianity and about the way we respond and the way we present the gospel. Because the truth is we want to present the gospel truthfully, faithfully. And we want people to respond to who Christ is as he presents himself in the scriptures. And what we keep coming to and what we often do is sometimes we undercut ourselves and undermine ourselves in the way we present the gospel. So today's talk is just three questions. I'm looking to look at three questions and what they say about us as Christians and how they are, in a lot of ways, fair critiques of Christianity. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the question, and I'm just going to uh, give a moment, a second or two, after uh, the asking the question for you to pause the video. Maybe you can have a discussion. How would you answer this question, or how would you discuss it before speaking? So this is an opportunity to, for you to think, for you to think through how you will respond and then to think about, okay, as you listen to what I have to say, okay, how can I maybe think about the way I'm responding to these questions that would be more helpful in explaining the gospel? Okay, so three questions that really look at and three critiques of Christianity that are looking at critiques. So the first question is this. What convinced you that the Bible is true? What convinces you that the Bible is true? Now, when you look at this question, there's there's a few different things to respond to here. You know, another way you could put this question is, how do you know the Bible is true? You know, why do you know that it is true? But at the heart of the question is is a statement about knowledge. How do you know what you know? That is that is really what the question is about. How do you know what you know? Why do you trust it? And there is the key. Because really what's going on in our society is we've put a distinction, and our society does this all the time, between reason, knowledge, and faith, trust. But the reality is, Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. The question isn't, do you have faith? The question is, what do you have faith in? What is it that you're trusting? And when people often ask us, why do we trust the Bible? They'll say, well, I have reason, you have religion. That's another way it's commonly put. But everybody is putting their trust in a reasoning. We're saying we're going to trust 
the reasoning of the Bible as opposed to the world. And atheists will say, well, we're going to trust our own reasoning. We're going to trust our own understanding. I remember I was at uni one day and, you know, I did a lot of walk-up evangelism at uni. And I remember this one particular day, there was this tall, strapping lad. He comes marching up and he, and he was, he was just a big, I was like looking up at the, uh, West Point Tower or West, uh, Westfields Tower, whatever it's called this week. Anyway, I was like looking up, he was tall. He, he was a man mountain. He looking down, oh, who are you? Anyway, so we were chatting and he, and he said to me, well, why do you, you know, why do you believe? And we got into a conversation. It lasted a couple of minutes. And eventually I said, well, you said this. But you're saying, now saying that, that's a contradiction. And he looked at, what do you mean? And so I explained, well, you're saying this and that contradicts what you're saying over here. That, that, that's irrational. Now, you're claiming to be rational. Well, if you're so reasonable, you're so rational, why don't you see your, your contradiction? Why don't you see how you're being irrational? And he looked at me down, he looked at me for a second, and then he just walked off. Because he realised he was wrong. He realised he was being irrational, that he had trusted in his reasoning and his reasoning was faulty. But as he walked off, he yelled out to me, I'll never forget this, he yelled out to me, well, at least I'm free. To which I immediately responded, how do you know? You're irrational. He never said anything, he just kept walking. My point is simply this. Everybody trusts something. Everybody has placed their faith in something. The question is, what have you placed your faith in and why? Now, for Christians, we place our faith in the Bible. And this is getting back to the question, why do we trust the Bible is true? Why do we trust what it has to say? Why do we trust God's word as opposed to human reason. Well, at the end of the day, the reason is simply this, because when we look at the Bible and what it says about us, when it looks at humanity, and this is for me especially, it says we are sinners needing salvation. See, the Bible explains how God sees the world. And God sees us as sinners in rebellion needing salvation. And as the Bible unfolds, as the Bible tells its story of God saving his people from themselves, really, it it explains its reason, it explains its rationale. It's not just one part of the Bible, it's the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. It is a complete story of God's saving act of his people. It forms a narrative. It forms a story. All the world understands their reasoning in stories, in narratives. Most of them don't think of them as stories, but they are always a narrative of some form. We follow the biblical narrative because it is explaining our our salvation, our rebellion against God and our need for a saviour. So that's what the Bible is really about. 
It's not about living a good life. It's not about living a better life. Will Christians generally live good lives? Yes. But it doesn't mean atheists can't live good lives. Some of them do. A lot of them do, in fact. Because it's not about the way we live. It is about the way we've treated God, the way we're responding to God. And so then you say, well, how do I know, you know, how do I trust? Why should I trust the Bible as a cohesive story? Does that, is that the answer the Bible gives? And it does. I'm going to just read from Deuteronomy. Uh, and this is, this happens just after God speaks to the Israelites at Sinai. And he says this, and he's speaking to Moses. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. First thing, the prophet must speak in the name of God. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, How can we recognise a message that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and that message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message that is not, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So what is God saying here? He's saying that his word will always come true. That he is in control of history that as he makes promises, we can trust what he says. But if the word somebody who claims to be a prophet speaks doesn't come true, well then it's not from God. Over the centuries and and millennia, people, God's people have always recognised the books of the Bible as coming from God and we've seen that they've come true, that they have been fulfilled. They're not all fulfilled. There's some promises that are still for a future date beyond us. But we look at the past promises. We look at how God fulfills them and how God has been working to fulfill them. And then how entrusting what he says and looking at the evidence of what he says in its context, and that's really important because there is something about language here, but as we look at the Bible in its context, and look at what he is saying, we see that the Bible constantly teaches the truth, that it has been fulfilled. And so we trust God because it's about the story about God, mainly revealed in Jesus and that narrative that causes us to trust it. Do we have complete knowledge? No. Do we know everything? No. We know what God has revealed to us. And God has told us how we should respond to him in his word. And just in terms of truth, there's a little passage that, it's a common passage that I think Christians use very wrongly. But it goes along with this idea of truth. And it's John 14, 6. We read, you know, we read this. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I just want to concentrate on that word truth for a second. So what Jesus is saying here, and I, and I, you know, I've heard Christians use this, well, I have the truth and therefore I don't listen to you. 
But as I really reflected upon this verse years ago, I came to realise a very important truth about this verse. And that is simply this. If what Jesus is saying here is true, and I take it to be it is, it means two things. Firstly, that he is God, because to say he is truth means he is the standard of truth. But secondly, it means, and this is the important thing that as Christians we need to realise, that the truth is outside of us. It is something to be strived for. It's something to be sought after. Now, the truth lives in us by the power of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean we always are right. It doesn't mean we always have the truth. It means it's something we need to aim towards. It means something we need to live, strive and live for. And the truth is simply this. And it's the truth of the Bible. We are sinners needing a saviour. That is why I'm convinced the Bible is true. It's what brought me to Christianity in the first place. I knew the truth, that I was fundamentally wrong, that I was fundamentally broken. And as I looked at the narrative, as I looked at the story and I looked at what God was saying, I realised, yeah, that is true. That is dead true. So I've often heard people say about Christians in the church, they say, oh, I couldn't go to church, it's full of hypocrites. To which I all, I've often replied, no, it's not. We have plenty of empty seats on Sundays. You'll fit right in. Because that's the truth. A sinner is a hypocrite. I'm quite hypocritical. So are you. I often see Christians when they're arguing with atheists, they want to say, well, Christianity is the better way to live and it's, you will only live well as a Christian. And, and that's not true. You can live perfectly happy, pleasing lives as atheists, as Muslims, as, as anything. But the truth is, when you realise that you're a sinner, incapable of saving yourself, then you'll come to Jesus. You know, this is what Jesus says. He says this in Mark. When he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Church is a sinner's hospital. That's where sinners come. And they come for forgiveness. And to be a sinner is to recognise that you are wrong and that God is right. It's one of the reasons, it's another reason why I know I can trust the Bible. Why? Because it keeps telling me I'm wrong. It keeps showing me my faults. And I go, oh, well, that's an honest book. It doesn't always agree with what I think or what I say. It often doesn't. But it forms me and conforms me to a new image and one that I want to live for. So that is the first thing. Why are we? Why do we trust the Bible is true? Because it tells the truth about us, that we are sinners needing a saviour. Second question. Is it possible for someone to believe they have a real relationship with God when in fact they do not? I'll just repeat the question. Is it possible for someone to believe that they have a real relationship with God when in fact they do not. Have a moment just to think about it. Now, this question gets to a personal 
bugbear of mine. And the question, you know, this is coming from uh, an atheist, uh, is not really worth that much. And I'll show you why. Because the question could be turned around exactly the opposite. And it's simply this. Is it possible for someone not to believe they have a real relationship with God when in fact they do? And, but what this has to say about Christianity and the, it has a big critique of the way we often present Christianity. Because what we'll often say is things like, I know that God exists because I feel him in my heart or I believe this reason or that reason. What we are often Christians will do is they'll put their reasoning and their thinking and explain, this is why I know God to be real. I remember one day I was walking across to uni, a few uni stories today, but I was walking across to uni and there was this street evangelist and there was a group of street evangelists up at MacArthur Square and they were proclaiming the gospel and they were like, you got to trust in Jesus and I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. And it's not that I wasn't paying attention, but I was like, oh, good on him. And I went up and I thought, oh, I'll take a track. So I took a track and as I'm walking along, I'm reading the tract. And I've got to be honest, the tract in terms of its presentation was pretty bad. You know, I'm a graphic designer. I've done typesetting for a lot of years. I'm just looking at the typesetting going, oh gosh, there's a lot of type. This is not very good. Blah, blah, blah. This is wrong. It's too type. But I read the tract. And as I read the tract, I realized, no, 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 they, they are preaching the gospel. They are preaching the truth about Jesus. So I went back, you know, I'd walked a fair way, but I walked back and I walked back specifically to thank them. And so I went up to the person and I said, oh, thank you for preaching the gospel. Thank you for preaching the truth. And the guy looked at me, who I thanked, and he said to me, have you accepted Jesus as Lord of your heart? And I just, and my, and I just went, oh, really? Really? Do I? I said, thanks very much. I'm a born again Christian because I know that's what that, that mattered to them. And I just said, but he goes, have you accepted Jesus as Lord? Have a nice day. I'm a Christian. And I walked away. But oh, gosh. That statement really frustrates me. Have you accepted Jesus as Lord of your heart? And the reason it frustrates me is this. Jesus is Lord of everyone's heart, whether you accept him as Lord or not. We often put, and this comes again back to this question, we will often ask people, do you want a relationship with God? And I always ask, why are you asking people whether they want a relationship with God? If they're a sinner, the answer is no. They don't want a relationship with God. But the problem is this. They have one, whether they choose to accept it or not. The truth of, of creation is simply this. God is our creator. We are his creation. We have a relationship Every single human on the face of the planet has a relationship with God. Whether they choose to accept it, acknowledge it or not, it is not a choice we have. When we say to people, do you want a relationship with God? What we're saying is you're sovereign to choose whether God is sovereign over you. And I'm like, uh, no, we're not. You often hear me say in preaching, and when I'm praying even, 
that we need to have a right relationship with God. And I know what people are saying when they say, oh, do you want a relationship with God? They are talking about having a right relationship, but it is often put in the context of you are sovereign over God and you have a choice. You know, you can choose whether you're going to relate to God or not. But it's not true. It is simply not true. We all have to deal with God. We all have to relate to him. The question isn't, have we made God Lord of our hearts? It is not a question, it is not an option we are given. Jesus is Lord because of God's decision, God's choice. This is what we read in Acts. And this is uh, Paul's act, Paul's speech uh, at the Areopagus in Athens. And this is coming towards the end. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness, righteousness by the one by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So we often talk about the resurrection as it it is being the guarantor of our life, and it is, and I'm not denying that for a second, but it is saying far, far more than that. In the resurrection, God is saying in Jesus, here is the appointed man, here is the man who has been appointed righteous before me, and I have appointed him judge of all the world. And the resurrection of him is proof that he is Lord, that you must deal with him. Making Jesus Lord is not a choice we have made, we get to make. Jesus is Lord by God's own appointment. The question is, is he our saviour? Do you recognise you need a saviour? Do you want to trust him as saviour? He is Lord. The call is, do you trust him as saviour? We need to be careful, and this is really about language. It is not wrong to say, do you want a relationship with God? Because that's what what you're saying is, do you want to relate rightly to God? But we've got to be careful that we're not saying to people, well, you get to decide whether Jesus is Lord. You get to decide whether God can be God. It is not an option we give people because God is God. He's always going to be God. Jesus is always going to be Lord. He's going to be Lord of the Christian. He's going to be Lord of the atheist, the Muslim, the whatever. He is Lord. That's what the ascension at the end of Acts is about. So when Jesus goes up into heaven, he's not going up, he's not doing a Superman to say, oh, wow, that's amazing. It's an ascension, but it's ascension to authority. It's an ascension to power. And by raising him up above every throne, every ruler, what God is saying in Jesus rising up above the clouds is he is in control of everything. And the reason why we should be saying this is because, you know, everybody has to deal with Jesus. It's not an option whether you get to deal with Jesus. The question is you either deal with Jesus at the foot of his throne or at the foot of his cross. At the foot of his throne, there is judgment. 
at the foot of his cross, there is salvation. That is the choice. And we are all called to actually repent, acknowledge that we are not king, and trust him as our saviour. So that's the second question, which really leads to the third question. If Jesus is Lord and he's Lord of all Christians, well, why are there so many disagreements? Why are there so many fights? And this is the way the question is put. If Christianity is true, why are there so many denominations that disagree on what each says are core theological doctrines? Out of all the questions, I think this is a really biting and fair critique. Why are there so many different versions of Christianity? Why do so many people, uh, why do Christians often disagree about things? And it comes back to the first point and the central real thesis of the Bible is that we are sinners in rebellion against God. You know, Paul says, and we just did this at church in Ephesians, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you receive with all humanity and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Should the church be one? Should it be united? And the answer is yes, most definitely. So why isn't it? Because we don't listen. We're not listening to what God has to say. Now, are there going to be disagreements in church? Yes, there will always be disagreements in church. But there are core theological issues that there should be no disagreement on. And there's not many of them. You know, there are three basically categories of thought. There are the core issues which are non-negotiables. There are secondary issues where there's a bit of flexibility and, you know, they're important and they sometimes affect the core issues, but you know, that's really where the denominational breaks happen. And there are the third category issues which are called, which are called adidaphra, whether you eat, you know, and they are things like whether you eat meat or you're a vegetarian. Now, there might be disagreements that people can, are left to their own consciousness. But the really central ones, the important ones, are the core ones. Those, uh, core theological issues that we can't disagree on. And what are they, you might ask? Well, they are really the doctrines of the Reformation. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, God's glory alone. See, those five doctrines are the core issues that Christianity must keep as central. They are non-negotiables. And each is for a very specific reason. See, Christ alone... There is one saviour. There is no others. Faith alone, it's not by our works. It is by Christ's work and what he has done and our trust in his work. Grace alone, it is God's grace to give the salvation to people. It doesn't come or 
or through some church or mediating organisation. It is God who gives grace alone. Scripture alone. There is one authority to whom we must all submit. There is not... uh, there is no other authority, there is no other institution above the scriptures. There are other institutions, but scripture is the top and everyone must obey. God's glory alone, it is all towards him. It is all for his sake. It's all to show the wonder, wonderfulness and power of his glory. And you go, well, well, you know, aren't you just imposing these upon the church? No, these are given to the church for a very specific reason. And it's simply this, it protects us. They are for our protection. From what? From the sinfulness of man. So we are called to obey God's word. These doctrines tell us here is the central things that will protect us from the vagaries and the willful sinfulness of humanity. You've heard the Shema. You might have heard that word Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And you go, okay, that's the Shema, that God is one. What does the word Shema mean? It's the Hebrew word for listen, obey. So when we drift away from the scriptures, when we stop listening to God's word, what we become uh, subject to and entrapped by is the whims of human reason. The reason why Christians trust the word of God is to protect us from the sinfulness of men, from the evil desires and whims of selfishness that so plague us that the scriptures say we'll always be subject to humanity rebelling against God. When we as Christians give up listening to the word of God, we become just as dangerous, just as vicious as any man on the face of the planet. You know, the reason Christians need to listen to the word of God and the reason why we bang on about the word of God is not because we want to control you. It's the very opposite. We want you to be shepherded by the saviour of our souls. That is Jesus. And as Christians, we need to learn to listen to that word so that we can get trapped by the desires and evils of other men. And as we present the gospel, as we preach the gospel, we need to trust that word, for that word is powerful and it achieves every purpose for which God has sent it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We know that we are rebels, that we sin against you, We pray, Father, that in our rebellion that we will repent, that we will come to trust your word, that we will not be caught up in the vagaries of our own thoughts and our own ideas. Turn us towards you, Father, always in Jesus, that we might live for his sake and live for his glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.